Chapter 9, Reaching Back to the Sources. We look upon industry largely as a matter of management. And to us, management and leadership are quite the same. We have no patience with the kind of management that shouts orders and interferes with instead of directing the men at their work. Real leadership is unobtrusive, and our aim is always to arrange the material and machinery and to simplify the operations so that practically no orders are necessary. Unless management begins on the drawing board, it will never get into the shop. It is the work, not the man, that manages. That work is planned on the drawing board, and the operations subdivided, so that each man and each machine do only one thing. This is a general rule, but it is flexible and has to be applied with common sense. If a machine can be devised to perform several operations at once, then it would be a waste to have several machines. A man may sometimes as easily perform two operations as one, in which case he performs two operations. It is often imagined that our system of production is founded on moving platforms and conveyors. We use moving platforms and conveyors only when they aid in the work. For instance, in making headlights, we do not use conveyors, because the nature of the parts is such that they can more easily be moved on in boxes than by a conveyor. On the other hand, in many departments we find conveyors extremely useful, and especially so in assemblies, that is, bringing the component parts of a unit together, for then the assembly can start at one end of the moving platform or belt conveyor and have its various parts added as it moves along. The thing is to keep everything in motion and take the work to the man and not the man to the work. That is the real principle of our production, and conveyors are only one of many means to an end. The key of our production is inspection. More than 3% of our entire force are inspectors. That simplifies management. Every part in every stage of its production is inspected. If a machine breaks down, a repair squad will be on hand in a few minutes. The men do not leave their work to get tools. New tools are brought to them. But they do not often need new tools, and machines do not often break down, for there is continuous cleaning and repair work on every bit of machinery in the place. When new tools are needed, there is no delay. Tool rooms are provided for every department. Once we had large supply rooms and men lined up at the windows to get their tools. That was waste. We found it often cost us 25 cents worth of a man's time, not counting overhead, to get a 30-cent tool. With that, we abolished the central tool room. A man cannot be paid high wages for standing around waiting for tools. Nor, which amounts to the same thing, can the public be served? Stooping to the floor to pick up a tool or a part is not productive labor. Therefore, all material is delivered waist-high. Our system of management is not a system at all. It consists of planning the methods of doing the work, as well as the work. All that we ask of the men is that they do the work which is set before them. This work is never more than a man can do without undue fatigue in eight hours. He is well paid, and he works. When management becomes a problem, the fault will be found to be with the planning of the work. Of course, if men are under some outside influence or control by which the amount of work which they do in a day is limited, if they have to answer to an outside authority, then management is impossible. 
and consequently high wages cannot be paid for the production of low-priced products. The whole wage motive fails. It was in order to eliminate lost motion, which is just as fatal in a factory as in a bearing, that we began, some years ago, the plant which we call Fordson, and which has now become the heart of our industries. Four years ago, it had a blast furnace, several shops, and about 3,000 men. We had taken over the ground and put up some buildings to manufacture Eagle boats for the government during the war, fast little boats to go after the submarines. Now the plant covers more than a thousand acres, has a mile of river frontage, and employs upward of 70,000 men. It is not in the line of our thought to build many large plants. We believe that smaller plants have a function too, and we have made some interesting experiments along that line. But Fortson handles raw materials, and in order to avoid unnecessary transport, we have had to group around the raw materials the heavier assemblies, such as the motors, and also the entirety of the making of the tractor. The reason for Fordson is transport. The Rouge is not much of a river, although we have managed to use its power almost from its source, but now the river is dredged so that great lake boats and the smaller ocean liners can come to our docks, and we have dug a good-sized turning basin. This opens the plant to water transport, and the ore and lumber boats can come directly into the plant from our mines and forests in Upper Michigan. Then also it is the terminus of the Detroit, Toledo, and Ironton Railroad, which we own. This road connects with our coal fields and also crosses nine main trunk lines. Therefore, not only can all our essential raw materials meet at this plant with no extra handling, but also finished automobile parts can leave with equal ease for any part of the country or the world. The whole plant has been built with the single thought of simplifying the handling of material, and the backbone of its transportation is what we call the high line. The high line is a concrete structure 40 feet high and three-quarters of a mile long, with five railroad tracks and two protected footpaths across its top. The outer track, nearest the storage bins, is of open girder construction and permits bottom-dumping cars to discharge their loads directly into the bins. Underneath the tracks are the active storage bins, which supply the blast furnaces and other units. Every bit of space under the tracks is utilized for the full three-quarters of a mile. Here are machine shops for making locomotive parts and other equipment, stock rooms, tool rooms, conduits, conveyors, and blacksmith shop. There are 85 miles of railroad track in the plant supplementing the High Line. This permits the transportation of car loads and even train loads of material to any part of the plant. Most of the coal, iron ore, limestone, and lumber arrive by boat, and enormous storage facilities have been provided to carry the plant through the period when navigation is closed on account of ice. The primary storage bins extend for half a mile in length, and their total capacity is more than two million tons. Cargoes are removed from incoming ships at the rate of 1,050 tons an hour by two mechanical unloaders, which can lift 12 tons at a dip. The primary storage bins are spanned by traveling bridges 520 feet long, which transfer material from one bin to another or to the high line, where the secondary or active storage bins are located, convenient to the blast furnaces. The moment a vessel docks, the unloaders get to work, 
and the record is the discharge of 11,500 tons of ore in 10 and a half hours. The average time is around 11 hours, but this is being cut down by dropping a tractor into the hold when it is almost empty and scraping the ore into piles to be more easily picked up by the big unloaders. Now see what all this means from the standpoint of production. Neglecting for the moment the powerhouse, which will be taken up later, it is enough to say that we are centralizing our power at Fordson for Highland Park, Fordson, the Dearborn Laboratory, the Lincoln plant, the Flat Rock plant, and the railroad, and that we are getting 40% of this power practically as a byproduct of our blast furnaces. Trace the operations. Coal comes up from our mines in Kentucky and is stored in bins under the High Line or goes directly to the coking ovens being pulverized on the way. We have 120 high-temperature ovens with a capacity of 2,500 tons a day. These are all byproduct ovens, and beside them is the byproduct plant, in which we recover such of the products as may be used within the organization, excepting the ammonium sulfate, which we sell outside, and we also sell our surplus of benzol, as was said before. The coal delivered at the plant costs us about $5 a ton, but when converted into coke and byproducts, it is worth about $12 a ton. We have erected an experimental paint and varnish plant further to utilize byproducts. Part of the gas produced in distillation is used to heat the ovens so as to make the process continuous. Another part is piped to Highland Park, while what remains is sold to the local gas company, which is an indication of how eventually the industries of community and the community itself may be linked together. The tar and oil we use in our own industries. At no point in the coking process is hand labor used. Nearby the coking ovens are the blast furnaces. They are charged with iron ore, coke, and limestone from the bins along the high line. The blast furnace charge is made in the ratio of two tons of ore, one ton of coke, half a ton of limestone, and three and a half tons of air. The products taken out are in the ratio of a ton of high silicon iron, half a ton of slag, and five and a half tons of gas equal to 200,000 cubic feet. None of these products is wasted. The gas is cleaned and filtered to remove blast furnace dust and part of it used in the stoves to preheat the blast. The balance is piped to the powerhouse where it forms the principal fuel. The blast furnace dust is also saved. Formerly this dust, which is nearly 50% pure iron, was regarded as waste and was either dumped or sold as scrap, for it was too fine to be melted in the furnaces or cupolas. This dust is caught up in collectors, unloaded in cars by gravity, and carried directly to the sintering plant, where it is mixed with steel or iron borings and agglomerated into heavy lumps, which will melt easily. This process not only reclaims a great amount of iron, but it also avoids the former labor of hauling it away. At the time the sintering plant was first put into operation, we had accumulated enough blast furnace dust to furnish material for more than 600,000 cylinder block castings. A comparatively small force of men is required to operate the blast furnace, all the heavy work being done by machines. Electric drills cut the clay plugs when the furnaces are tapped, and a compressed air gun shoots in clay balls to close it again. As has already been explained, a large portion of the slag goes directly to the cement plant. Formerly, the foundry operations were at Highland Park, but now all our iron casting is in the Fordson foundry, 
to avoid transportation and the reheating of the metal. This foundry now extends over 30 acres and is entirely operated on the conveyor system. The foundry is paved, the floors are kept spotlessly clean, and a system of suction pipes, ventilators, and dust collectors keeps the place cool and free from dust. In fact, there is nothing but the castings being made and the hot metal to suggest that the place is a foundry. The foundry is not segregated into departments. Instead, every department is coordinated into a continuous stream of manufacture by the use of conveyors. Core making takes place on an endless chain which feeds the conveyors, carrying the molds to the pouring stations at the cupolas. Molds are also made on moving conveyors and reach completion only a few yards away from the hot metal ladles. The return trip allows the castings to cool before they reach the shakeout station where they are removed from the flasks and the sand shaken out. After the fins and rough edges are chipped off, another conveyor carries the still hot castings to the tumbling barrels where they are revolved until the surfaces are smoothed. The motor block is the heaviest casting used in the car. It was formerly manufactured at Highland Park, but it was a waste to transport these castings to Highland Park and then ship the completed motors out by rail to the branches past the very gates of Fordson. Therefore, we transferred the motor assembly to Fordson, putting it in a building 800 feet long by 600 feet wide. There are four main assembly lines or conveyors, and now the process of making the motors is continuous. We start with the blast furnace, and end with a completed motor stacked in a freight car. The casting leaves the foundry on a moving platform or conveyor to one of the assembly lines. It is machined. The other parts are added as it moves along. And when it reaches the end of its line, it is a completed and tested motor. And all of this without a stop. Out of the same foundry come the tractor castings. They pass into the tractor division, and the tractors leave the final assembly under their own power and pass into the freight cars for shipment. The processes all differ in detail from those described in my life and work, but the principles are the same. By bringing everything together in the Fordson, we have been able to cut very largely into the time of making, so much so that it is said we deliver our tractors before they've had time to cool. Unlike the motor car, we ship the tractor complete from the factory. The tractor is so compact that it does not pay to ship it in parts for assembly at a branch. For several years, we have had large electric furnaces, one a 50-ton furnace, for the salvage of steel scrap, as has been noted. And now we are adding more furnaces and a rolling mill, so that we shall be in a position not only to cast, but to roll all our steel scrap, and, if we find it advisable, to make our own steel. I have great faith in steel. Model T came into being because of vanadium steel. No other steel up to that time gave the necessary strength without bulk. We are working on many special kinds of steel, and I believe that the lightness and strength necessary for the all-metal airplane will eventually be found in steel. We must be prepared to make the special steels exactly suited to our uses. The real age of steel, when we begin to realize something of its possibilities, is only approaching. Tonnage still predominates, and not only are we transporting too much metal about the country as metal, but also nearly every steel product that we use is far too heavy. Every time one uses two pounds of steel, when one pound of special steel would do the work, one puts an unnecessary burden on the public, 
which reflects in higher prices, less consumption, and lower wages. Steel has more possibilities than any other metal. An interesting side development of putting the work on the machines instead of on the man is the increased necessity for skilled workmen to repair machinery and tools, and now to construct new machinery. Many people thought that machine production would destroy craftsmanship. Exactly the reverse has come about. We now need more expert machinists than ever we needed. We can always use more toolmakers. Making and repairing machinery is now a large industry with us, employing several thousand men. As we increase our fund of mechanical knowledge, productive machinery will steadily require less attention from its operators, and the shift will be to the making of this machinery. We are not as yet equipped to make more than a small part of the machinery that we use, and have thus far confined ourselves almost wholly to special machinery on our own designs. We have made some large machinery in connection with our new power plant. The condenser casting for the turbo generators weighed 96 tons. We made the generators partly because we wanted to put into them some of our own ideas, and partly because we could not get delivery from outside manufacturers as quickly as we needed. The savings brought about at Fordson have been enormous. We do not know how great they are because we have no method of comparing the savings on our present large production with the former cost of production.